The title of the sermon is Expressions of a Crooked Heart. The Apostle Peter, at the end of this passage, states an extremely important and disturbing curse and call to Simon. Let me read it again. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. What if an elder in our church today, after the sermon, came to you and said those words? You have no part in Christ Community Church's ministry. May you perish with your silver. I ask you that question because Simon here had professed faith. He had been baptized and accepted into the body of believers there in Samaria. And an elder, namely Peter, said those words to him. I think it would be devastating, at least for me. As an introduction to the sermon this morning, I want to make a few observations of this very important curse and call to repentance. Just a couple. First, Simon is told he has no part or lot in this matter. Let's try to wrap our minds around that a little bit. Uh, The word part can be, I guess, understood as participation in. The word lot, I suppose, you could interpret that as being an inheritance from, gaining an inheritance from. A lot is something you inherit. So Peter is saying here, you have no participation in, nor do you get anything from, and then he uses the word, this matter. Well, what does that mean? The NIV, those of you who have NIV Bibles, it translates it ministry. The word really is logos. It means word. So, Peter says, you have no participation in or inheritance from the expression of the gospel, the word of God, or the ministry. When I was a college student in California, uh, a prominent member of the church I was very much involved in came to me after service on Sunday and said, Hey, David, I'd like you to be a part of uh, my table at a banquet this Friday night. Uh, It's Crisis Pregnancy Center's banquet. A a well-known public speaker, a Christian speaker, is going to be there, and he's going to talk about abortion. Now, second to Kim Bev, that's probably pretty good, right? Kim Bev knows a lot about abortion. So I'm thinking, hey, that's great. But really, as a college student, this is what I heard. Blah, 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 blah. Free food, blah, 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 blah. And I said, I'm in. Where do I sign up? Let's go. I remember the precise... Have you ever been to these banquets? I mean, you, you know, I've never been as a college student. I've never been to one. But if you've gone to the Young Life banquet, you, you know, you know it's, it's a fundraiser for Young Life, as this was for Crisis Pregnancy Center. So I remember the precise moment that I figured out, oh, gee, this is a fundraiser. I was, I was eating some bread, and it was hanging out of my mouth, and, and I had an iced tea in my left hand and, and a fork full of chicken in my right, and everything was heading towards my mouth when all of a sudden I looked in the middle of the table, and there was a basket full of envelopes, money-giving envelopes. And, and the host was imploring us to give as much as we could to Christ's Pregnancy Center. 
And I looked over at the man who had invited me. And he must have read the panic on my face. Because he came over to me and said, hey, David, really, you know, I I invited you for the food. I invited you so you could have a great time here. You don't have to give money. I didn't invite you for that. I'm not trying to trick you here. I know you're a college student and, you know, you're poor, so don't worry about it. Well, I didn't. I didn't give any money. When the envelope came by, I took my paper and wrote a little nice note. You guys are doing a great job. You know, put it in there. There you go. And I was driving home. And I was driving home, and I, I felt horrible. I just felt awful. And I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And this is what I remember thinking. Aha, I know why I feel bad. I have no part in that ministry. You see, what Christ's pregnancy center was trying to do, I had no part in. I was just there for the food. And so we see Simon here in Acts 8. Simon is just here for the food. Peter mentions his heart. It's kind of weird. He says your heart. He says it twice. He says, your heart's not right before God. And pray to God that he might forgive the intent of your heart, the thought of your heart, the motivation of your heart. And then Peter says something extremely amazing, at least to me. It hit me this week. Listen. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. You see, Paul sees it now. And the point is, he didn't see it before. The heart of man is hidden from our eyes, isn't it? Until it expresses itself. And so, we begin our discussion this morning on the expressions, the part we do see, of a crooked heart. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing joint from marrow. Father, your word judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from you. Everything is laid bare. And so, Father... We're a little uncomfortable as we stand before you laid bare, naked in your presence. Help us to see our hearts like you do, but don't stop there. By the power of your Holy Spirit, transform us into the likeness of Christ. Amen. As a background, you'll notice I I put some note-taking notes in your bulletin, so you can follow those if you'd like to. Uh, What I'm going to do here is I'm going to talk a little bit about the background to just the book of Acts and Acts chapter 8, so we kind of remember what we're talking about. And then also, uh, I'm going to talk about the biblical concept of the heart, just briefly, and then we'll start looking at three expressions of Simon's heart. First, the background. The book of Acts is not like the book of Galatians or Romans or Ephesians. It is a collection, as you know, of historical events, not just a collection of propositions or arguments. So being that, you have to think, Luke, the writer of Acts, did not write every single historical event down and put them into the book of Acts. He chose certain ones, and and the reason he did that was because he was trying to make a point That's nothing alarming. 
He wants to look at the early church history and say, these things I remember happening. This is, this is what really makes the point. And here it is. This is the point, he says. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So you see there three phases of church growth. As you remember, Paul Phillips preached on, on Acts. He said the same thing. I'm pretty much reading now from what Paul Phillips said. Uh, Acts chapters 1 through 7. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Acts chapters 1 through 7 deal with the church first and foremost in Jerusalem. Acts 8 through 10 or 12 kind of deal with Judea and Samaria. And then 13 to 28 deals with the end of the earth. So you see, that's the point of Acts. See, Luke is trying to... to um, to show us that the church is growing not just in Jerusalem, but to Judea and Samaria. And then not just there, but to the ends of the earth. And so where do we find ourselves this morning in that second phase? Now, a question that might occur to you is this. Well, Paul says in his epistles that the gospel goes first to the Jew and then to the Greek or the Gentile. Well, gee, there's only two there, right? And there's three here in Acts 1.8. Well, look at the second one that we're focusing on this morning. Judea and Samaria. Remember when the kingdom of Israel divided? The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. What he's saying here in Acts 1.8 is the gospel will go, you will be my witnesses, in Jerusalem, the southern kingdom. Then Judea and Samaria, something like the northern kingdom. So that all Israel, even the half-breeds, the Samaritans, even they get the gospel. And then once, once Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria is taken care of, then we take it to the ends of the world. So that's where we find ourselves in stage two, Judea and Samaria. All right, now, I'm done with that. Let's go on to the biblical concept of the heart. Since we're talking about the heart here, we, you and I, in America today, will probably define that word heart probably like something like emotions, Right? We think it feel. You feel things. And if you don't agree with me, you, you, you might after I read a series of words. Try to think of the definition of these words. You'll probably end up somewhere in the realm of emotion or feeling. Heartache. Feeling. Heart of gold. Heavy heart. Heartwarming. Heartless. Heartburn. Well, not that. Okay, not Heartburn. I do get kind of emotional when I get heartburn. I say that. But all the other words, there's always one exception, one black sheep of the family. All the other words kind of mean feeling. So that's kind of what it means, feeling. This is not the biblical concept of heart. Okay, it's not. The biblical concept of heart is a little bit different. Uh, by the way, uh, the word heart appears 855 times in the Old Testament and about 155 times or so in the New Testament. Now you know what I was doing Thursday afternoon, counting all the hearts. Uh, I read that somewhere. 99% of the time, the heart refers to the center of man, his will or motivation, his affection, feelings, and his intellect or his thinking. David Noggle says this, the heart is the central defining element of a person, his or her spiritual nucleus. Hear the words from Proverbs 27:19. As in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man. So, if you know a person's heart, 
you know the actual person. Okay, so that's kind of the biblical concept of heart. Let's take a look at how this biblical concept of heart finds its expression. Uh, in Matthew 15, which is why I included this passage, Matthew 15:17 through 20, you'll notice what Jesus says about the heart. It's, he says, Do you see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? That's a pleasant thought. I'm thinking donuts here. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Out of the heart come, and it lists a number of sins. Adultery, murder, theft, etc. You see here in this passage how Jesus describes our evil hearts finding their expression in sin. So does the heart of Simon. What sin do we see in Simon's crooked heart? Let's take a look. There are three ways that I found Simon's crooked heart finds its expression. First, Simon's heart starts with pride. It's proud. Second, Simon's crooked heart is guided by blindness. And third, Simon's crooked heart is overwhelmed with greed. My first point, Simon's crooked heart starts with pride. What if I were to ask you to come up here, stand before the congregation, and take a microphone, and admit to us all, you can't find a job to provide for your family, or even yourself, that you need help, financial help. What if I were to ask you to come up here, take the same microphone, and admit that you really don't have all the answers as a parent? You really don't even know the first thing about parenting. You don't know how to make your daughter respect you or your son to obey you. Or, and I guess I'm aiming at myself at 18, what if you were to come up front and admit to the entire church that you really don't have most of the answers to most of life's questions. So some hard questions. You see, my first response to those is, yes, I can. Yes, I do. And I'll prove it to you. That's my response. One way to think about pride is to think of your, yourself as your own provider. Your provider of answers. Your provider of money, resources to take care of yourself. You don't need anyone else to help you. Listen to Psalm 10. Psalm 10 says this. In his pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there's no room for God. And then it says this. His ways are always prosperous. I don't need God. He's haughty and your laws are far from him. He sneers at his enemies. I don't even need God for my enemies. I don't need God. Well, you control your world around you in such a way that you don't depend on someone else, namely God. This pride desires that others notice this self-reliance, I think. Did y'all see the Volkswagen Passat commercial? I love that commercial. It says this, the Passat claims it has the lowest ego emissions of all the cars on the road. 
it's funny. It's where people are hanging out of their driver's window with the megaphone. You've seen it. And this is what I wrote it down. This is what it says. The first uh, is a person uh, over masculine car driving this huge Dodge Magnum with a huge engine, big tires. And this man leans out and says, because daddy never hugged me, because daddy never hugged me, because daddy never hugged me. See, he's explaining the reason why he bought this car. The second is a lady in a shiny red convertible. And she leans out the window and she says, because the more guys notice me, the more I love myself. Because the more guys notice me, the more I love myself. And another guy sporting a S500. Very nice car. He says, because I make more money than you. Because I make more money than you. You see, this is Simon. That's Simon. I present to you Simon the Proud. Simon's crooked heart starts with pride. Let's look. Samaritans paid attention to and were amazed by Simon. Notice verse 10. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest. Everybody paid attention to Simon. Again in verse 10. This man is the power of God. That is called great. Verse 11. And they paid attention to him because for a long time, and this is interesting, he had amazed them with his magic. The word amazed, think about it. It means to put someone out of their wits. If you're amazed, you are placed out of your wits. And you're, you're amazed. Uh, the King James Version uh, translates this word as bewitch. To move someone into amazement whereby normal logical ideas about the world don't hold up to what you're seeing right now. It's amazement. See, Simon wanted people to say, how did he do that? And then he wanted them to conclude, Simon's great. How did he do that? Well, he must be great. Simon's crooked heart starts with pride. He expresses his pride again in 19. Notice these words he uses in 19. Give me. What? The the Holy Spirit? Healing? No. Give me this power. So that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And amazed all over at me again. Give me this power. He wants to be self Reliant. He doesn't want to surrender his life to God. The quote on the cover of the bulletin by Andrew McLaren says this. A heart right in the sight of God is the indispensable qualification for possession of spiritual power. And any blessing which Jesus gives. Obviously, Simon's heart is not right before God. And then we notice... In the writings of Justin Martyr, some more information comes to us that most scholars that I've read, at least, think might be true. Simon left the body of believers after being told, you have no part in this ministry at all. Simon says, you're right. I'll, I'll show you. Look at verse 24. Pray for me to the Lord so that none of that stuff you said would happen to me. Is he going to God? No, no. You see what he's doing here? He sees the wielder of power not as God, but as Peter. 
And so as a magician to another magician, Peter, hey, you're the guy with the power. You pray for me. Well, it goes on to say this Simon could possibly be the father of a heresy so great. Even portions of our New Testament uh, is directed at this very heresy. In the second and third centuries, there is a group of, of heretical Gnostics who trace their beliefs back to Simon, the Simon of Acts. The earliest and most famous account is that of Justin Martyr from the middle of the second century. Justin Martyr was himself a Samaritan, and he wrote that Simon was a Samaritan who was worshipped by all the Samaritans, and he uses these words as the first God. That's what Justin Martyr says. So, it's probably true. In any case, oh, Justin said one more thing. Justin Martyr said that Simon of Acts had a wife named Helen. And Helen was the self-proclaimed reincarnation of Helen of Troy. I kid you not, that's, 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 what, that is, that's what's in history. In any case, Simon's crooked heart started with pride and grew from that point. I do not believe Simon truly repented. I do not believe Simon truly repented. Let me ask you a question. What qualifies you to join God's kingdom? What qualifies you to join God's kingdom? Paul, 1 Corinthians 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom. And here it is. That your faith might not rely on or rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The only qualification to join God's kingdom is that you not be qualified and admit it. So, Simon's heart expresses himself in pride and self-reliance, then the, the right heart, the humble heart, ought to express itself in dependence. Utter and complete dependence. This attitude of dependence is important to God. He tried to instill this attitude into the Israelites when they wandered for 40 years. You'll remember that in Exodus 16. Part of their wandering training, if you will, was to rely daily, all the time, utterly and completely on God. In fact, in Exodus 16, Moses said, when God was providing manna for, for the Israelites, you'll remember, he says this, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of the manna that they had collected, part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell, and Moses was angry at them. Now, why is Moses, why is God telling Moses to tell the Israelites don't collect anything beyond just today. Why is he saying that? He's, he's saying that. He's saying that because no one in Israel is going to say, I provided this manna for you. That's ridiculous. Everybody knows it came from heaven. Manna from heaven is out there. But you see, what the Israelites did is they went over there and they collected all the manna they possibly could, maybe for ten days, and they put it in their... 
whatever they lived in, tent. And, and they got it in the corner of their tent. And they, they're, not, they're not providing it. They're, they're going to say, God provided everything for me. But I collected it and saved it, and I then rely on it. That's pride. You and I, money comes from God. Food comes from God. But do we store? Storing things isn't the problem. Having a savings account isn't a problem. The problem is looking to that collection and relying on it. That's the problem. That's pride. I can provide for myself. Again, Jesus teaches us to pray, and he uses very specific words, not by accident. In Matthew 6, he says, give us this day our daily bread. If you're a millionaire, you have to pray that prayer. How do you do that? You get rid of your savings account? You sell your car? No. You have an attitude of the heart that relies utterly and completely on God. That's the end of point one. Let's move on now to point two. Simon's crooked heart is not only starting with pride, it is guided by blindness. You see, pride, it breeds blindness. It's born from, blindness is born from pride. It keeps us from seeing. You remember the church in Laodicea, where uh, Jesus comes to them and he says, you're lukewarm. You remember that? He says, you're lukewarm. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. But there's a really interesting part of that that I didn't, I didn't see until just last, well, I guess the last month. He says this, so because you're lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I said, yeah, I know that part. Here's the part I didn't know. You say I'm rich. Jesus says to the church, you say I'm rich. And I've acquired wealth. And don't need a thing. There's the pride. But you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, and blind. And then Jesus says, I counsel you to buy medicine to put on your eyes so that you can see. There seems to be some connection between pride and being blind. When you go into a Roman Catholic church, you see great things. That's what you see visually. Painting, stained glass windows, sculptures, even the priest wears a collar to sort of point to deeper truths. When you come to Christ Community Church, what do you see? Uh, you see a basketball court. Well, we've got a cross. That's good. We, we, we have a cross. And I'm wearing a tie. That's good, right? I'm wearing a tie. That's a good question to ask. Let me ask that question again. When you come to Christ Community Church on Sunday morning, what do you see? Music? A guy playing the bass? Pictures in the lobby that are very nice? A funny story? A donut? The kids in front of you that won't be quiet? Where are the kids in here? Yeah. Or do you see Christ? One of the greatest ways for you to answer that question might be this. Just an idea. It's kind of crazy. Tape record yourself in the car and at lunch after church. If any of the conversation is about church, it might give you an indication about something like what you saw at church. What do you talk about when you leave this place? If you're only looking at the pointers... 
I, I like to call those things pointers. Everything we have here is a pointer to Christ. Worship leaders, everything. Everything we do here should be pointing to Christ in some way. So if you're looking only at the pointers, if you're only talking about and concerned about the pointers, you're just like Simon, missing it, totally missing it. I was in the park. This is, this is a great story from Hope. And I asked permission from Hope if I could share this. And she said yes. So I'm very pleased to say, say that. But we were walking in the park, Hope and I, and it was daddy time. So I had her hand. We were walking down a little sidewalk. And uh, we were going to the slide. And, and, and along the path coming towards me was a woman walk, walking a bulldog. My mother-in-law had a bulldog. And I remember playing with this bulldog at, at Shelly's mom's house. And this, you know, bulldog, and it's a big husky dog, and big, you know, it's kind of scary because the teeth come out and the big paws, and you know. And anyways, I'd play with that dog, and we'd wrestle. I'd literally throw the dog across the living room, and as soon as it would land, it'd run back at me. And we just had a ball. So when I saw that dog with Hope, and I was like, oh, okay, this is great. I got excited. I, I, I was like, oh, my gosh, look at a bulldog. And Hope kind of was like, okay, Dad's getting excited. She noticed me getting excited. Oh, something's coming. Something's great. I don't know what it is, but man, Dad's getting excited. All right, let's go. Let's do it. And so I pointed. I said, Hope, look at the bulldog. And Hope looked at my, me, my face. She looked at my finger. And she went, oh, yeah. And I said, no, 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 no. You're missing the point here. Look at the bulldog. Bulldog's right there. She looked at my face and she said, okay, he's even more excited now. And you know what she did? She took her hand. She made a finger. She pointed, she looked back at me, and started to giggle again. She totally missed the bulldog. By that time, the bulldog had passed us, had gone around the corner, it was gone forever. She totally missed the bulldog. Don't miss the bulldog this morning. That didn't quite sound right. (laughs) Don't miss the point. The point is this. Simon... The blind. Let's take a look at Simon. Notice verse 13. And seeing signs and miracles performed, he was amazed. There's that amazed. Out of my wits. So now Simon's not amazing others and putting them out of their wits. Someone else is amazing Simon. Now he's out of his wits. Oh my gosh. How did Peter do that? What's the conclusion? He must be great. Again, in verse 18, and when Simon saw the spirit was given through the laying on of hands, the apostles hands, he offered them money. Notice, please, that Simon is not trying to buy the Holy Spirit. Why is this important? Why is this important? I'll I'll tell you. He's trying to buy the secret Gnosticism. That would reveal the giving of the Holy Spirit. When he saw the Spirit was transferred from a human being, he thought, I understand that. I do that all the time, but I don't know that trick. So here's money. Tell me how to do it. What is he doing there? What is Simon doing there? What is he seeing? Signs, miracles, the effects of the Spirit. Now, I have to admit, I read Acts 8. I read miracles, a hand withered, healed. Come on, would you want to see that? A hand that's withered, healed. A guy that's blind can see now. That would be awesome. I would love to do that. But those are just the signs. What does Simon not see? What does Simon not 
see. A wonderful design to the plan of salvation. Now, I'm going to go through a few things here. Bear with me. This is the wonderful design of God's plan of salvation in Acts chapter 8. You know, the Samaritans and Jews, they're enemies, right? Samaritans are half-breeds. Jews are not. The Jews look at them and say, you're not real. You're sort of tainted. Then the Samaritans say, we're not going to worship in your temple. We're going to worship in our temple. They set up their temple. They build it up there in Samaria. They look back down to Jerusalem. They say, okay, Jews down there in Jerusalem, you worship God your way, and we'll worship God God's way. And it was a huge, huge hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews. You all know that. And Israel hated back. Okay, then, move ahead a little bit in history. Jesus is born. His ministry starts, age 30, 33. He goes into Samaria. John 4, he says, after he deals with the woman on the well, remember? The woman goes and tells the whole town. Okay? Samaritans. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And Jesus stayed in Samaria for two days. And verse 41 of John 4 says this, And many more believed. So we've got this huge following in Samaria. Then you move on. Jesus dies on the cross, rises from the dead, and he says, Acts 1.8. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Before he dies and rises from the dead. This is an important point I need to make. Another time in Luke 8, Jesus comes back to Samaria on his way to Jerusalem. And it's Luke 9, it says this. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's Jesus going to Jerusalem. And he sent his messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people of Samaria did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. So, Jesus, you're going to Jerusalem? Okay, we reject you now. Now. James and his brother John witnessed this, verse 55, I'm sorry, verse, verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I can't tell you how many times I've prayed that same prayer in the sixth grade classroom. <laughs> Lord, you want me to tell fire to come down on Johnny here? He's really driving me nuts. What did Jesus say? Turned and rebuked them. No, don't do that. And they went on their way. So here we see James and John hating the Samaritans, even after many Samaritans believed. Okay, now Jesus dies and rises again. Acts 8, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. Jesus wasn't, I mean, he just wasn't talking to nobody. He was talking to somebody. He was talking to the apostles. James and John and Peter, they were all standing there. When Jesus laid it out for them, Jerusalem, there's Samaria, second phase, and then the ends of the earth. Well, as far as the Bible's concerned, and any shred of evidence that ever has been looked at, there is no evidence to suggest that there's a mission committee set up in Jerusalem to go to Samaria. There, there's nothing like that. John, James, Peter have no interest in Samaria. No mission budget, no interest taking the gospel to the Samaritans. So Jesus allows Stephen to be brutally killed in Acts chapter 7, verse 58. 
because he's a Christian, because he's a Hellenistic Greek Christian, and the Jerusalem Jews just can't take it. See, persecution here gets Philip to sign up to be a missionary and go to the Samar- into Samaria. If you won't go because of Acts 1.8, then you'll go because of Acts 7.58. Okay. But why was Philip sent and not John? James? Or Peter? Why was Philip? Philip was a deacon. There's, there's, there's no evidence either that Pete, Philip had any special or, or, ordained authority to preach the gospel on behalf of the church in Jerusalem. So why did the Holy Spirit see it fit to send Philip? Philip was fleeing persecution. From who? The Jerusalem Jews. Who hated the Jerusalem Jews just as much as possibly Philip? The Samaritans. So now you've got a man who has something in common with the Samaritans. And the gospel is preached again. And, and the ministry grows. The response is enormous. Okay, then... Inside the gospel, inside the gospel, Peter and John come. They don't come before the gospel gets to Samaria. After the gospel comes to Samaria, inside of that, that's where enemies meet. And do you remember what David Williams last week and the week before preached about the sons of Adam? And the violence that spiraled. And then you've got Abraham. And then you've got Abraham's descendants. Remember Paul in Galatians called the promises of Abraham? What did he call it? He called it the gospel. We have that same gospel in Samaria. Where enemies again meet. Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, those enemies meet. The sons of Abraham. What is it that they do? Reconcile. They have the ministry of reconciliation. Inside the gospel in Samaria, Peter and John, enemies of Samaria and Samaritans, come into Samaria and they have the ministry of reconciliation. They have the ministry of reconciliation. How do the Samaritans know they're bona fide Christians? How do Peter and namely John, who wanted fire to come down and destroy. How did John know that the Samaritans were bona fide Christians? The Spirit. When the Spirit came upon the Samaritans, the Samaritans said, wow, we are Christians. John said, wow, they are Christians. And look at verse 25. Now when they, Peter and John, had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they, meaning Peter and John, returned to Jerusalem, and here it is, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Do you see that? Do you see how the Holy Spirit orchestrated all of those events for his, his purpose? Do you see how wonderful that is? That is, beyond words, awesome. What did Simon see? Verse 13. Signs. Miracles performed. It's kind of boring now, isn't it? I'd love to see a withered hand healed. But you know what I'd like to see better than that? This whole gospel coming from Jerusalem into Samaria in an incredible way. 
and Simon misses it. As my daughter saw only my fingers, Simon sees only miracles. I ask the question again. When you come to Christ Community Church, what do you see? That's the end of the second point. Third point, I promise, is very brief. Simon's crooked heart is not only starting with pride, not only guided by blindness, but his pride, his crooked heart is overwhelmed with greed. Okay, I have a new job title here. The session met last Tuesday. They had a long meeting. And um, I don't know if this, the elders have told you this, but um, th- th- they met and, uh, and they told me that I, I now have a new job title here at Christ Community Church. I'm adding to my job of uh, ministry of youth and, and college and so forth. Okay, so now I've got a new job title. It says, I'm going to be the official building designer for Christ Community Church. The elders have told me that every single decision about that building will come first and foremost through me. It's my new job. K-5, where are you? K-5, I've got your wing ready. I've designed it. Uh, nursery, don't worry. I haven't forgot about you, toddlers. Adult Sunday school, I won't forget you. And I know you all can't wait to see the architectural design that I've come up with for the front of, front of the church. How does that make you feel? I mean, that's not true, obviously. But if it were... How would that make you feel? Let me ask you, what do you think the 14 youth rooms would look like in my design of the church? <laughs> How about the jam session recording studio or the gymnasium I'm planning on building? How about Paul's office? <laughs> I've got big plans. <laughs> in a position like that, I would have great temptations, wouldn't I? It's about control. Control. Not greed for pleasure, not greed for luxury. Simon's heart is overwhelmed with greed for control. When I was a teacher at Leland Middle School, I often had to go to the restroom and I had a problem. Namely, I was a teacher at Leland Middle School that had to go to the bathroom. So what I would do is I'd go next door to Mrs. Burton. I'd say, Mrs. Burton, I'm going to the bathroom. And she'd be sitting at her desk grading papers as her kids were filling out more papers. And she'd look up at me and say, okay, and just go on, just like that. And I knew, you know, okay, she's probably not going to watch my kids because she's, you know, she's just busy. So, But I had to go, so I went down the hall and I came back. And when I came back, oftentimes there were these... Girls giggling and, you know, in, in the corner. And I, I just thought, what is that? So at lunchtime, I asked them, why are you giggling? Oh, well, you know, this kid, call him Joe. Joe gets up and bullies people. And he makes jokes and, and they're funny, but he bullies people. He really puts them down while, while you're gone. That's what he does. Every time you leave the classroom, Joe, Joe gets up and he does all these things. And kids, you know, you give me your pencil, all this stuff, right? He kind of bullies kids. He makes jokes. He kind of takes over the class in a sense. And you could see, I mean, the, the veins in my, temp, you know, I'm ready. All right, where's Joe? I, I got to wait, though, because I got to plan this here. You know, <laughs> someone's taking over my classroom. That's not bad. I have to be in charge. I'm the teacher. The problem is Joe. So next time I go to the bathroom, hey, Mrs. Burton, okay, David. All right, so I leave and I come, but I don't go down the hall. I just kind of, and, and the key to this is you got to start loud and then start getting quiet. So it appears, <laughs> and I just kind of wait. And I hear Joe, of course, he gets up. And right in the middle of his performance, I come back and I deal effectively with Joe. 
I've taken control back of my classroom. (laughs) Control. It's a beautiful thing. Simon. This is interesting. He was like the class bully. Listen, Jesus came to Samaria, remember? And many Samaritans believed in him. Okay. Simon came along, took away that following from Jesus, bewitched them, amazed them. Follow me. Call me great. Not that Jesus guy you saw last week, but me. Look at me. Jesus returns to Samaria in the form of Philip, Peter, and John, and takes back his following. Simon tries again to buy it back from Peter. Control, it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Okay, if if I'm not that guy who decides all the things about the building that we're going to build, who then? Who among us will be the person who makes those decisions? How are we going to do that? How about the person who gives the most money, the person who's the most holiest, who knows the most about the Bible, or do we together, holding each other's hands, give everything, even control, in every aspect of Christ Community Church to Jesus Christ? And with those words, I present to you Simon the Greedy. Let's look at his crooked heart quickly. This is the crooked heart. This is when it really becomes known. His crooked heart becomes known. Uh, Look at verse 19. Give me this power so that anyone I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. He wants control and power. Again, in verse 20, Peter says to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. What is the gift of God he's referring, referring to here? The gift of God... The, the gift that Peter is talking about is the, the power to give others this Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is a gift. He cannot be bought with money. Simon, he wants to pay money to get the power to control. Let's say you and I go to lunch. I order a sandwich and french fries and an iced tea. And you order your thing. The waiter fills my iced tea up four times. Brings me more fries twice. At the end of the meal, you pay for the lunch. Here's the question. Who made the waiter fill up my iced tea? Me or you? The person paying. The person paying is the one in charge. Who sends out the Holy Spirit? Who's paid the price? If you answer Peter or John, they didn't pay the price. You're wrong. When, but they laid their hands on the Samaritans. That's how the Holy Spirit's given to others, right? No, no. There's Christians that actually base this on Acts chapter 8. They say that the only way you can get the Holy Spirit is if someone lays their hand on you. That's not true. Acts 2.4. Pentecost. No laying on of hands. And yet the Spirit comes fully. Acts 7.55. Stephen stands before the Jerusalem Jews. Full of the Holy Spirit. No one anywhere lays their hand on anybody. Acts 10.44. Peter's talking to Cornelius. A Gentile. 
And this is what this is great. While Peter this is what it says. While Peter was still saying these things, the spirit fell on all who heard. No laying on of hands. So who is controlling the Holy Spirit? Peter? John? No. Let me just say it. Jesus Christ is in control. Jesus Christ is in control. That's the end of my third point. So what do we do now? You see, it's not, I, I, it's not Simon's heart that keeps him out of the kingdom of God. It's, it's not, it's, it's not that, that Simon's heart was crooked that keeps him out. It's, it, it stayed crooked. It wasn't transformed. Examine your heart with me, won't you? Our hearts can be like Simon's heart, beginning with pride, guided by blindness, overwhelmed with greed for power. So what do we do now? Ezekiel 11. Listen to the word of the Lord. God says, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. The only solution for people like this is radical surgery. The removal of the defective and fossilized organ and its replacement with a sensitive and responsive heart. Psalm 51. Clean my pure heart. Doesn't say that. Give my new heart a paint job. No. Doesn't say that either. Create in me a pure heart. Let's pray. Oh Lord, that those words would be ours this morning. Too often we look at Simon and we see ourselves. Too often we are proud. We miss it, we're blind, and we want to control what goes on here on your earth, in your church. Create in us a clean heart. Amen.